Hello and welcome to our first post-Trump edition of Beyond Busy. This is the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance, happiness and success, all the big questions for work and life. My name's Graham Alcott. I'm your host for the show. And on this episode, I am talking to the amazing Anne Bowden. Anne is the founder and CEO of Starling Bank. One of the very few people that can say that they started a bank from scratch. And we just have a really wide ranging, interesting conversation, more of which in a moment. So just before we do that, a couple of quick plugs, which only apply if you are listening to this on the day this episode comes out. So I am, as part of World Kindness Day on Friday the 13th of November, speaking at a couple of different events. So Think Productive are doing a free webinar, which if you just go to thinkproductive.co.uk, click on free webinars at the top and you'll see the box come down for our session, The Productivity of Kindness. That's going to be with myself and Christina Kisley. Uh, So come and be part of that. It's going to be 45 minutes long. It's free. We'd love to see you there talking about my ideas around how kindness has been really central to the culture at Think Productive and everything that we do. And also why I think it's good for productivity. And then immediately following that, I'm speaking as part of an action-packed and, quite frankly, ridiculous lineup for KindFest 2020. So if you want to find out more about that, go to teamkind.org.uk. The tickets are five quid, so really cheap, accessible uh, price. But the speakers include um, Sir General uh, Captain Tom Moore, who's the guy that raised all the money for the NHS, as well as Caroline Lucas, the Green MP, as well as Frank Turner and Billy Bragg singing, Helen Tupper from Amazing If, who's been on this podcast before, uh, Dr. Rada Modgill from the uh, BBC Radio 1 Lifehacks podcast. So just a huge lineup of speakers and it's all about kindness. So teamkind.org.uk if you want to find out more about that. So that is Friday the 13th of November. It's 2 till 7pm UK time. See you there. So let's get into this episode. This is Anne Bowden, the incredible founder and CEO of Starling Bank and author of a new book called Banking on It, How I Disrupted an Industry. And we just have a really wide ranging conversation. We talk about her working class roots, how she dealt with money, why she's still frugal. We talk about productivity. She's got some amazing um, just hacks and surprises around email, which is uh, definitely worth uh, checking out. And of course, I ask her about Monzo and the uh, kind of ongoing uh, feud, if you like, between Starling and Monzo Banks, the two kind of most disruptive banks really uh, in the UK. So really interesting episode. I think you're going to really enjoy it. Let's get straight into it. Recorded just last week, actually. Here's my conversation with Anne Bowden. So I'm with Anne Bowden, um, founder of Starling Bank. And um, what was funny about that was in your book, you talk quite a lot about being switched on 24-7 and just the the very frenetic, uh, busy lifestyle that your role uh, entails. Um, so um, let's let's start with that. Like, what have you been up, been up to today? What's um, what's buzzing on your phone right now that's, uh, that, that's threatening to interrupt this podcast? Well, there's lots going on today. Um, we've got a lot of things we're very, very into with regards to 
uh, new lending to businesses. Uh, the Chancellor's just announced changes to uh, the various lending schemes, so I'm involved in all of that. Um, my new book was published today, uh, and therefore um, I've been tweeting about that and reading some reviews. Uh, and I've just come off a call uh, with a team of people looking at a new product. Uh, so pretty di- typical day, really. So congratulations on the book coming out, although you should never read reviews, right? That's, that's <laughs> <laughs> That just goes without saying. Um, so the book is called Banking on It, which we're going to talk about. And the subtitle really um, gives a good description for the journey you've been on, which is um, how I disrupted an industry and not just any old industry, but banking, which I think, you know, I, when I think of banking, I, I definitely think of um, a very traditional, um, you know, regulatory driven industry that would be very, very difficult to disrupt. And not only have you done that, but you've made a huge success of it. So um, so let's talk about that a, a bit um, on this episode. So for anyone who doesn't know what Starling Bank is, um, and we do have quite a few international listeners who may not know, do you want to just give us that as, at the beginning? So what is Starling Bank and, and how is it different from a, a high street um, current account bank or a high street lender kind of bank? Um, Starling Bank is a UK-based bank. We're a fully regulated bank. We're regulated by the PRA and the FCA, uh, and we do... Um, current account banking, uh, and we provide all the services to uh, consumers and small businesses that you'd get from a high street bank. So we don't have branches, uh, but we have the finest tech in the world where you can manage all your business through an app um, or on, on, a, on a laptop. Uh, and we have been in business now for the last six, seven years, and we are growing very, very fast. And we've been voted top British bank, best British bank three years in a row. Tell us more about why is it different from the traditional banks? Because you you don't have branches, but you you grew up in, you know, through your career in having senior roles in all of those banks that do have branches, right? So um, tell us why Starling is so different. Yes, well, I'd spent a long time working in traditional banks. I'm a computer scientist by background. I did a chemistry and computer science degree. And I started in Lloyds Bank many years ago. And I had a long career in Lloyds Bank, Standard Chartered Bank, Union Bank of Switzerland, ABN AMRO Bank, Royal Bank of Scotland, Allied Irish Banks. And I I came to the conclusion that banking was broken. Um, the banking industry was trying to repair itself after the last financial crisis. And if it's so inward looking, it had forgotten what the customers really wanted. And technology had changed every other industry. Technology had changed um, the way people shop. Technology had changed how people bought music. But banking was really, hadn't really got it at all. And in 2013, I decided to quit my job to start a bank. And people said, people don't start banks. And um, that was the that was a challenge I needed uh, to start Starling. And Starling at the moment has 2 million customers, uh, £4 billion worth of deposits, a billion and a half of lending, and we've grown very, very fast. Um, we have something like 250,000 um, small business accounts, uh, and those businesses use us for all their banking needs. Uh, and we're also lending to those businesses um, in these very difficult times. So we are a um, we are a, we are technology-driven bank. What we mean by that is 
is that we put a lot of effort and care into crafting beautiful technology that's easy to use, um, that's very pleasing, that's highly resilient. And because of these technology tools being so so good, um, people embrace us and um, and love banking with us. We do have people on the end of the phone 24 by 7. So uh, 365 days of the year, you can phone somebody at Starling uh, to answer a query. But primarily, we're all about technology. We're using technology um, to give you a wonderful banking experience. And that took some doing. Uh, we are really at the top of all the, the ratings charts when it comes to customer service. Um, we rank really near the top of all the various um, ways you can categorize um, service and performance. Uh, I'm very proud of that. And we are going to be becoming bigger and bigger uh, and uh, and trying to extend our offering across Europe as well. Yeah. And you talk in the book about one of the, one of the lovely things from the book was you talking about your vision for helping people to manage money. Right. And I think what you say in the book is that a lot of banks see current accounts as almost like a loss leader thing that isn't, you know, actually where their priorities lie. And also it's a bit at arm's length, but that idea of being able to 24 seven, be able to phone somebody from the comfort of your own home, rather than having to go into a branch is obviously a better customer experience. And you talk about in the book, how some of the earlier innovations to try and disrupt banking were basically to turn bank branches into something that looked a bit like the Apple store. But then it's like, you know, you don't really want to have to go all the way to the Apple store. You want like, you know, you want to get that service when you want it in a flexible way, direct to your phone uh, and do it in a much better way. So it felt like you really, you know, had a, a really strong vision about helping people to be able to manage money and to do that in a way that uh, they didn't get into debt. And I think you used the phrase at one point in the book, um, they run out of month before uh, before the next paycheck. And so people are going into overdrafts regularly. And, you know, your your vision was, was really about helping people to have a better um, experience with money rather than with banking, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, money is very, very difficult for lots of people. And that's people with lots of money or no money at all. Um, money is a problem for most people. Um, it divides into the people who um, spend every Sunday evening with the Excel spreadsheet counting up all the pennies and the ones that never open the, you know, the brown envelopes. Um, we all need a better relationship with money, something in the middle. And what I'm, what we try to do is to help people engage with their finances much more regularly. So do, uh, we have every time you spend uh, uh, on your card, uh, you have a notification saying how you spent the money. You can categorize all your spending. You can have joint accounts. You can have euro accounts. You can have cards uh, for your children. Uh, you can see um, how you're spending your money. You can sort it in lots of different ways. So it's all about giving people the tools to manage their day-to-day finances. And we find that our customers range from you know, sort of very young to people in their 90s. And people embrace this new way of, of having control. Um, and the important thing is that nobody wants to put effort into getting control. You want to be able to, these tools should operate themselves. And that's what we've done. We work really hard in getting products that really um, are quite satisfying to use and give you that control. 
I've got to ask you about about your own relationship with money then. So, you know, you you grew up in a, a Welsh mining town. The, the your dad was a steel worker, and your mum worked in a department store. Um, and uh, you say in the book that there were kind of two sides to the town that you grew up in. Um, your side of town was the the working class side of town, the industrial side of town, where the banks didn't even bother to put branches. So. What was your what was your relationship with money growing up and you know like your household and and your kind of uh, the ways that you would think about money personally? Yeah, um, I came from a family that was very very good with money. Um, we may have lived to the wrong side of town, but we had a very nice life because we were very good with money. Uh, we didn't competitively spend. Um, one of the things that I see an awful lot of is. Um, people spending to keep up with friends or keep up with family. What my early um, sort of learnings were that you can save, you can be frugal, you can get a lot of pleasure from uh, from from getting good value from money and for saving and for saving up for something that you you really want. Um, I was very privileged. I had a family that were um, that had very ordinary jobs. Um, but we had a lot, you know, we went as foreign holidays. We, we spent a lot of time traveling uh, because we were very frugal and we spent money on the right things. Um, and of course, you know, I, I loved it. I loved having that control. Uh, I didn't know I'd go along and end up, you know, going to work for the banking industry and then many years later founding a bank. Uh, but I was part of a family who, who managed money and we we were very accomplished at it. I feel like being frugal is seen as deeply uncool these days. And I I would say I'm probably quite sensible frugal uh, with my money. You know, you're now someone who uh, owns a large stake in a bank. <laughs> like, do you th- are you still frugal yourself? Yes, I think I am. Yeah, I think that I think it's quite important to enjoy your money. Um, I think. That money gives you control over your of your life. Having money means that you can have more choices and more, and you can make more decisions. Uh, but I also think that um, you can enjoy, you know, making good financial decisions. Um, I have quite a range of quite expensive designer handbags. <laughs> um, but many of those handbags um, I buy um, <laughs> pre-loved, okay? Right, okay. <laughs> and um, a nice euphemism for, um, you know, somebody very rich bought them. And <laughs> um, so, but I think that is that sort of thing where um, you, you can still appreciate uh, and have pleasure from buying things. And buying it um, at a discount still gives you a bit of a buzz. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing, isn't it? Is like I, I love. Um, we have a where I live. There's a car boot sale just up the road from me every Sunday, and the, I just love the idea of digging out treasure and finding things for a pound that someone else was about to throw away, and actually they're you know they're, they're really valuable. Um, you know, and I could go and buy that thing for full price, but there's just this, there is a buzz, isn't there? Like that kind of idea of uncovering little treasures and, and getting a good deal. And-, yeah, and I think that's, you know, that is human nature. We're all in this world where we're trying to optimize our life in some way. 
And whether you're looking for the best value on a holiday or you're looking for the better exchange rate on your foreign exchange or you're looking for a good deal in the laptop, I think these are all things we do to optimize our life where it's a bit of a goal involved and achieving that goal gives you pleasure. Yeah. Do you do you ever find yourself um, spending money in a way that is a little bit more like reckless or with a sense of abandon like ah screw this i'm gonna lavish a load of money on the on one particular thing no (laughs) (laughs) i i think i enjoy my money but i'm but uh, i i'm still careful i really respect that that's cool that's um uh, that's really good to hear um one of the things that struck me about the book was about motivation And you talk very early on in the book about how you're working at um, AIB, Big Bank in Ireland. You've got a huge job there. Um, You're the group COO. And you're going through this very painful process of um, restructuring. You're making a lot of people redundant. And you're going into work every day thinking, how long will I do this before I retire? And the contrast really struck me that that's at the very beginning of the book. And at the end of the book, you're talking about how you've got this huge buzz from running Starling and it, you know, you're the founder and the on, the entrepreneur and you've got this very entrepreneurial approach. Um, and then you say that even if the stock exchange bell rings and therefore you've, you know, sold the company and you're suitably rich, you probably do it all again and, and start something else. So just really interested in your motivation. So presumably, um, you know, when you're working at AIB, uh, when stuff isn't going well, the motivation for um, for working is to sort of get to the stage where you have enough money to retire. Um, but then now with Starling, the motivation feels like it's very different. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I am very lucky in that I have op- lots of options. I think in AIB, it was really very difficult to deal with the day-to-day restructuring and making people redundant and living in an environment where you were ashamed to be doing the job, to be honest. People didn't like bankers in Ireland. It was a, I was part of an industry uh, that wrecked the country. And this is after the kind of Celtic tiger collapse. So I went into AIB post-crisis at the rescue squad to turn the bank back to profitability. And that was something I, I was really excited about, you know, to be able to restructure, which means make people redundant. Um, and it was horrible. It was the people, you know, who came in the branches, the people, our customers were suffering. Um, we had to restructure the organization. We had to sell off loans. We had to make people redundant, change systems. It was all very downbeat. But I had to do it, and I was very good at it. You know, this was a very, very successful period. But it had to be something better than that. So I went around the world talking to people in different parts of the world about what they were doing with their banks. And everybody was doing roughly the same thing. Let's refurbish the branches. Let's put nice sofas in them. You know, let's get people to come into the branches in order to get mortgages. But the local population wanted somewhere to pay in their cash and coin. They didn't want a mortgage. They didn't want to sit on a sofa. And the only thing that was different about all these strategies was the color of the carpet in the, in the <laughs> box. It was, it is very, 
everybody's trying to do the same thing and everybody's trying to convince themselves that this strategy was going to work. And I started dreaming about the fact that, you know, somebody should start a new bank with new technology. I spent quite a lot of time in Silicon Valley talking to tech firms and the technology was out there to build a very, very different bank. Uh, but nobody really could do that transformation. And I came to the conclusion, if you could start from scratch and have a new banking license and new technology, you could have a whole new way and different business model and a new way of relating to customers. And this would be fantastic to do. And somebody should do it. Yeah. Uh, and then one day I was brave enough to say, well, that's what I'm going to do. And you say about going around the tech firm. So you went and did tours around Google and various various other businesses around Silicon Valley. Um, so you you were doing that tour. when Was that when you were at AIB, when you were going around Google? No, twice, actually. Um, I, it was in 2011-2012, after I left RBS and before I started AIB. And then whilst I was at AIB. And do you just email people at Google and say, hey, I'm senior in the banking industry in the UK. Can I just come for a tour? Like, how did you set that up? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think what you can do if you just ask. Yeah, um, I love that. You know, if you actually reach out to people and say, you know, we're interested in X, Y, Z. Can we come and talk to you? These big companies such as Google and whatever, they having they have visitor centers. They 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 have a machine that allows you to go and visit. It's a bit more complicated to get uh, to some other companies, and it's very complicated to get into big banks around the world and let them let you you know stand behind the counter and serve customers. Uh, but unless you reach out and talk to people, you don't get that perspective. Uh, and you, know, you may have to send out half a dozen emails and you'll get one invitation. Uh, but you should do it. These things are, this is how you learn about the world. Love that. Uh, it comes across so many times in the book of different bits where you, you, t- you talk, I don't know if you know, do you know that you do this, but you talk about things that seem very daunting in a very matter of fact way. Like uh, there's that story where you're sat and someone comes up to talk to you on a cruise and you're looking at all the different um, industry headlines around fintech and whatever. And at this point, you, you're not even in a job and someone says, are your um, you know, boss is not going to give you some time off. And you're like, no, I'm doing this all because I want to. And then they're like, uh, what are you doing? And you're like, oh, I'm just going to start a bank. It's <laughs> just like, I, I think if someone that was on a cruise on New Year's Day was doing that for their own, off their own back with no employer telling them they had to, and then they came out with a line, I'm about to start a bank. I'd probably think they were mad, wouldn't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that I think that's the magic of it all. I think that if you start thinking about things that people that are going to surprise people who have never been done before, um, you know, it's brave, it's exciting, and 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 if you do hard things, they may make a difference. Um, where do you think you get that sense of bravery from? Don't know. Uh, I, from a from a family perspective, or from a experience perspective, I think that I I have a cousin who's also done some remarkable things quite late in her career, 
Uh, so there could be a slight family um, bias towards doing things which are unusual. Uh, but it's my father that gave me all the energy. Um, and my mother who gave me the the skill to talk to people and to, I think, to empathise. Um, there's a thing in your book where you say something like, I'm going to paraphrase this and probably get this wrong so you can correct me, but something along the lines of if you have a small ambition and you fail, that's failure. But if you've got a really big ambition and you fail, then that's bravery. Is that right? Yeah, I think that, I think this comes from my decision to to start a bank. Okay. And um, the the question was, if I started a, a dress shop uh, and failed, um, that would be a bit of an embarrassment. But if I set out to do something really audacious, like a bank and failed, it wouldn't be failure at all. Um, so as long as the goal is big enough, there's no fear in failure. That's super inspiring. Um, really love that one. Um, some of the stories in the book about being a startup where you go around giving chalk ices away in exchange for people downloading the app. Um, and you had had to sell your house in Swansea to uh, help fund it. Um, it sort of struck me that that's not the kind of behavior that you tend to find from someone who, so you were doing this when you were 55, right? Mm -hmm. When you were starting, starting, and also someone who is breaking out of, you know, well-paid jobs in the corporate world to start from scratch. So um, just interested in how you found that transition from uh, presumably having a good team of people around you and your role being really defined to suddenly having to be like the jack of all trades um, quite late on in, in your career. So like, what was the, what, what did you find uh, was most interesting to you about the contrast of that? So going from the the corporate life to very much kind of startup energy. I think, you know, when you're in a big corporate, you have, you have infrastructure around you, you have a, a big title and you can phone people up and they do stuff. You also have money to get things done. When you're in a startup, uh, you have none of that. Uh, you're very much on your own. You're on your own wits, really, to to get things done. Um, it's also you need to do things that are quite difficult. You know, the, you know, the day when I went around the um, perimeter of rugby field in in my hometown, um, when uh, and gave away. Um, gloves with Starling Bank on the side, um, and and when people you know sort of took the gloves and said, "What's going on here?" I said, um, "I'm the CEO of a bank. Um, I'm basically giving away freebies. Um, would you like an account?" Um, people did think that was rather strange. <laughs> if I'm prepared to do that, it means that other people in the organisation are also prepared to do things that they find uncomfortable. There's nothing as uncomfortable as as going up to an executive sitting in an office and saying, um, would you like an ice cream? Um, here's a brochure about Starling. Uh, that is pretty scary to do. <laughs> okay? um, and I think you have to be prepared to, um, to do scary things if you want to break a mold. So I wanted to talk about productivity. Obviously, that's a, a, a very um, close subject um, to my heart and also um, one of the key things that we talk about here on Beyond Busy. 
Um, there's a thing in the book where you are talking about your relationship with email. Um, mm. And you say that you answer as many as you can, and you've got a system for processing your email within three seconds. Yeah. Um, and that recently you'd emailed a customer and they thought that you must be a bot because it's like, are you, <laughs> are you pretending to be Anne, the CEO of the, of, of my bank? And you're like, no, I am Anne, the CEO of your bank. <laughs> so tell me about email and, um, what, what's the secret of processing it all within three seconds? I get a lot of email and my email is very guessable. So I get all sorts of people sending me emails, but I'm quite good at quickly scanning, figuring out who it should go to, uh, or very, very quickly making a decision. Yes, no, maybe, whatever. Uh, dwelling on certain things and taking my time when I have to um, think it through. I tend to process emails only once and get through them very quickly. I tend to clear all my emails every hour, every two hours. So I rarely have more than a couple of emails sitting in my inbox. Uh, if I can't deal with it then and there, and I need to think it through. Or if it's for something later on in the day, I will um, mark it as unread and I'll come back to it later. So normally I have something like zero emails. I don't file emails. I just open them and then just search uh, when I need them. Yeah. Uh, and I normally have, say, I could have up to about two or three unopened emails, uh, which are things I have to do during the day. So when you're saying processing it and getting it to zero, is that the other ones that you've read, are they still in the inbox or are you filing those into one folder? Like what's the... What does the screen look like in front of you? I, I just leave them in the inbox as unread, as read. Or as read, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. processing it down to zero is about getting the ones that are unread to a point where they're read. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. And do you have any, sorry, I'm getting geeky now with the productivity questions, but do you have any sort of triage systems where assistants are helping you do that or do you do it all on your own? All on my own. Really? Wow. Yep. I have, uh, I have an assistant who will be in my email uh, looking at what I'm doing okay and uh, and seeing seeing the things I've done and catching up on my calendar and checking that my calendar and other people know what I'm up to uh, but I do all my emails myself props to you for that I, I've had a couple of times where I've either worked with people or um, been talking to people about this and, you know, like MPs will quite often have, um, a system in place where one of their staff will, you know, they'll file things into a folder that are like, here is the thing about the road traffic dispute or whatever. So send them the, you know, the, the sort of stock answer about that, that particular dispute or whatever. So you must have, um, you must have certain replies to emails that you feel like you're doing over and over again. Um, no. Uh, the, I, I have a big team so I can pass things down to people. Yeah. Things I do, I shouldn't be doing repetitive things. Yeah. Uh, and if I read a customer send me emails and I find it interesting and it's, it, it hasn't been dealt with before and there's not a natural home for it, 
I'll ask a few questions myself. Okay. And that is a case where, you know, the, the customer thought I was a bot. <laughs> um, okay. No. And then they'll say, um, it's not really Anne. I said, yeah, it's really Anne. <laughs> um, okay. Right. Good. Yeah. And, but that's also what a bot would say, isn't it? Oh, uh, yeah. Probably a bot would say that. <laughs> and they also basically say, Do, am I doing my own social media? Wow. Okay. Uh, I have I have a quite a big Twitter following. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I tweet. <laughs> so I suppose I have to ask you about Monzo, don't I? Do you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess the the thing that came out as an extract from uh, from your book, Banking on It, was the story of, um, well, it, it was characterized by someone else in the press as Team Anne versus Team Tom. And this goes back to uh, some of your members of your founding team um, leaving to, to set up Monzo. Um, do you want to tell the story, um, first of all? And then I've got a couple of other things that I'm going to ask you about. I promise I won't uh, Yeah, that's no problem. Uh, yeah, co- no cover problem. the ground too much if you don't want to. No problem at all. Um, I've, I was darting Starling and uh, I was doing that with people who I knew from previous roles. Um, I knew Tom Blomfield, who subsequently became a CEO of Monzo from uh, a previous um, business encounter a few years earlier. Uh, I hired him onto the team. Uh, he um, uh, he resigned, <laughs> uh, uh, leave me in the lurch and raised money and took the team with him. Uh, uh, leaving me with no team again and a substantial amount of people um, who expected me to pay them. Uh, So I built a team and lost them. And uh, and in doing so, uh, Tom went off to create Monzo, which is uh, another um, new bank. So we've got Monzo and we've got Starling and we are probably um, the... um, the big new banks in the UK. Yeah. And uh, we have quite a connection. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And one of the things that you talk about in the book is um, just that you had some quite different working styles. So I just wanted to focus in on that. And, you know, everybody's probably been in, in similar situations at work where you've got someone that you're managing who it just feels like they're chalk and cheese with you, or it's very difficult. So, I'm just interested in what you learned from that experience in terms of, um, you know, how to try and make those relationships work when the personalities are really, are really different. I think that probably um, the, you know, this, the Stani Monzo story is a case of where it didn't work. So I'd much prefer to talk about, you know, circumstances where it's worked much better. Yeah. Usually when you put a, an organization together, uh, you put together a bunch of people who work together and not necessarily have the same working style. And putting together a, a bank, Starling, there's a huge number of people who are technologists, who are very into um, data and logic. And then you have people who have a creative background that so are going to be helping us with our, um, with our marketing Combining those in one organization where people support each other and can appreciate each other is, is, you know, quite a challenge. 
But that's what I've been doing my whole career. I'm very, very good at putting teams together. Um, so much so that I've created two banks. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really nice way of putting it. Um, it feels in the book like it's quite a painful story. There's, de- there's definitely some, some pain in there. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's very painful. Um, why did you want to include that in the book? Because you also say that the book's not a memoir. And so you could have chosen to just leave that out and just, or just mention it fleetingly. Um, why was it a story that you wanted to to revisit? I think there's a couple of things. First of all, um, you have to be authentic. Uh, you have to put the stories about things that went wrong as well as things that went right. And the story I tell about creating a team and, and, and losing a team I hope will will help people in building their businesses and dealing with similar issues. Uh, people tell people normally tell the stories about how everything went right. People tell normally tell the stories of um, they're the hero at the end. Everything was fantastic. Um, they made all the right decisions, and in the end, they 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 succeeded. You rarely get the stories of things that go wrong and when things fall apart because those people um, are less likely to survive and are not going to have a platform. Um, I have the platform to write banking on it uh, because I now am a CEO of a very successful organization, a very successful bank. Uh, Unless I had that platform, I wouldn't be able to write the book and share the book. Yeah. And if I only wrote the stories that were the good stories, um, I think that'd be false. It wouldn't be authentic. It wouldn't be transparent. And people would feel as if I'm, well, I've let them down. And I suppose ultimately, you know, people talk a lot about this idea of survivorship bias, right? Where we we, we tend to associate certain people or certain stories around success because they're like almost like because they're the last one standing but that doesn't mean that like everybody that starts a a, a technology business in their garage is going to be apple or google right there's there's all the ones that fall along the wayside who don't get to tell their stories so um yeah it feels like you're doing a really important um service to people by uh talking about that so honestly and openly in the book um and i re- i really enjoyed um, reading the story, particularly the bit about the domain names. Do you want to tell that story? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, we um, Monzo was originally called Mondo. Um, they uh, they had to change their name because they were challenged. They didn't own the i the 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 trademark. Um, we find out that um, they're probably going to change it to Monzo, and we spot they hadn't. Uh, registered all the names, such as Get Monzo or whatever. So uh, we were trying to, we were trying to soften the relationship between us and Monzo. <laughs> you know, everybody knew that um, there was history between the two organisations. We were in the same space. We were competing against each other. Um, so I had the idea of um, of when they announced their new company name to simultaneously launch a website, which was um, Get Monzo, 
And it when people searched for the new company name, up came the screen with uh, congratulations on the rename, the rebrand, lots of love, Anne. Um, it was intended to soften the the rivalry, the competition, and perhaps it did. Uh, because, but also in that message, you had a bit about um, when you start a new bank, everything is possible. That sort of linked back to your previous name as well, right? Which is kind of like that's a bit of a dig, isn't it? Like, isn't that a bit of a? It's, it's, it was very much a, a secret message. Yeah, one of the journalists would get. <laughs> um, but it's look, starting a company is not life or death. You know, it is it is commercial, it is financial. It is, it's about your career and your financial success. Uh, but it's, it's no more than that. Uh, and it, it's, very diff- it's very easy for people to get these things out of control. And having revisited the relationship with the launch of the book and um, uh, that particular piece, I think, was serialised in one of the newspapers recently as well. Um, what, what, what does the relationship look like now? Um, we occasionally see each other uh, on panels, yeah, uh, where you know there's a panel and there's a there's a um, moderator. People must all the time try and book you guys to be on the same panel together to try and you know that becomes like a fintech kind of uh, uh, attraction, right? It's like to see like <laughs> Anne versus Tom, right? Does that happen? Yeah, but it, 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 incredibly, it's never Anne versus Tom because <laughs> what actually happens is the. Uh, you, there's four of you sitting on a panel, okay? So there's, a, there's somebody, say, from Lloyds Bank and somebody from Barclays and you know, Anne and Tom from Starling and Monzo. And the and somebody from the audience answers the, asks the question. And instinctively, Tom and I both know we're going to answer it in the same way. Yeah. We have a lot in common. We're in new, ba- new banks. And we've, you know, we, they're technology-driven banks with, with a vision and a mission. Uh, and therefore, um, when the question comes, uh, we glance at each other and go, who's going to answer this one? Because we know very well we probably have the same answer. So it's so it's more cordial than it was um, previously. Um, the we are. I think we're very, very respectful of our customers. Yeah. Um, you know, the first thing is our customers and we have obligation to our customers um, you know, to to up to the regulators and, and to our employees, um, nothing will get in the way of that. It's <laughs> a good answer. <laughs> um, let's move on. Um, there's, I will ask you about systems. So you, you mentioned computer science degree, and you mentioned in the book that you feel like your brain uh, thinks in systems. And I was just curious about what does that mean for the rest of your the way that you set your own work up and your productivity and your company and, and team and everything around you. Um, yeah. Tell me just a bit more about systems and what that means to you. It's a very, very good question. I think that things are very organized. Everything I do is, is quite routine. Um, how can I explain? We have, we have, we have lots of time during the day when we meet to discuss certain things um, most of the time, my my desk is pretty clear. Uh, most of the time, my emails are are down to two or three that are unread. I use a few systems, but I use them very well. 
I don't believe in doing things like change management or project management. Although my history and my background is project management and running big programs, I believe that we're now in a world where it's easier to do things than to plan them. And it's easier to do something and redo it than work to get it 100% right the first time. Yeah. We have certain rules of styling. We don't do presentations for each other. Uh, We don't believe in a huge amount of planning. We do everything we do. uh, We do it in a way which is very low risk. So if we make a mistake, we can undo it very, very quickly. Nice. And you referenced the Lean Startup. Is that is that is that a book that's been quite influential for you in terms of how you set the organisation up? Uh, in the early days, yes. Uh, but it's quite difficult to do a Lean Startup bank. Uh, and the problem is that the regulator wants everything to be very, very well tested and very, very rigorous and 100% proof, foolproof before you can have a banking licence. And that's a bit of a contradiction to the lean starter. Yeah. But, you know, there aren't any books about starting a bank. There's only one <laughs> called Bank of <laughs> feel like you'll, you'll, um, you'll, you'll, if your audience is all going to be people who um, want to start a bank, you're going to have a small audience of very, very committed readers. But I think you will have a, a much bigger audience beyond that too. Uh, there can't be that many other people out there who are just like, I need to start a bank tomorrow, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think the idea is in the. I hope that what comes through in the in the book is the fact that um, it, it's optimistic. It is it is dealing with and having the resilience to deal with things that go wrong. Uh, it is enjoying the process. I hope people enjoy reading the book because I enjoyed starting the bank. Uh, I think that um, people can take away a few stories about entrepreneurship and about career change as well and how you can do things at all stages in your life uh, that really take you out of your comfort zone. I mean, it just reads in a way that there's the sort of can-do, you know, screw it, let's do it kind of attitude that that goes through the book really jumps off the page. And, you know, I think... Um, for someone who, uh, you know, if anyone who's listened to this, who is thinking it's too late to change career, I mean, you were changing at 55, you're going into a world where it's a very male dominated, um, industry fintech, and you're there as the, the female, um, 55 year old founder, I just think is super inspiring as well. So there's a whole bunch of reasons to go out and, um, uh, check out banking on it, uh, and you don't have to have that motivation to start a bank. Um, I was just going to ask you one final question, and then I'm going to let you run in two minutes because you've got another uh, appointment, and I want to make sure I'm respectful of your time. But um, before we were talking about this idea that um, if the stock exchange bell rings and you and you sell up, you probably do it all over again, and you love that sense of being busy and the twenty four seven lifestyle of that. And there's a bit in the book where you talk about you could never go on a holiday where there's no Wi-Fi because you always need to be connected to back at the ranch. And I just wonder that sense of being busy and connected, it's so clear why um, that's, uh, you know, so clear that there's adrenaline around that and it's exciting and satisfying. But do you feel like there's anything that you've sacrificed for that to be your life over the last few years? 
No, I think that I am extremely fortunate to do something that's so engaging. It is such a privilege to, you know, to be able to do something as as relevant and as that has such impact as Starling. Um, have I given anything up for Starling? No, uh, I. I wouldn't have had it any other way. And that's such a lovely note to end on. And we'll share um, in the show notes all the links to uh, how you can follow Anne on social media and we can get a copy of the book. But Anne, thank you so much for being on Beyond Busy. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much. So thanks again to Anne for being on the show and thanks also to Matt Crossy from Penguin Business for helping helping me to set up that conversation. My producer for the show is Mark Stedman. His uh, podcast platform Podient is well worth checking out and our sponsors for the show are Think Productive. So if you're interested in productivity training and coaching, if you want to help your team to be more productive, just go to thinkproductive.co.uk. And we have a range of workshops delivered both online and in person, all of which talks you through all the main habits from my book, How to Be a Productivity Ninja, and more importantly, how to put them into practice. So if you're interested in that, just go to thinkproductive.co.uk. Final thing to say is we have all the show notes and previous episodes available at getbeyondbusy.com. So just go to getbeyondbusy.com for more. And we'll be back next week with another episode. We have got... The incredible Max Dickens, who is talking about improv comedy and what you can learn from improv to uh, help in the world of business and also a whole range of other stuff, how he uh, had a number of adventures with the website Groupon and lots of other great stuff as well. So really uh, looking forward to next week's episode. So until then, take care, stay warm, stay safe, and I'll see you in a week's time. Bye for now. 